Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. And uh, we'll start in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that you'd open our hearts as we study these next two chapters in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5 begins the practical section of the book of Galatians. Galatians 1 and 2, we have Paul discussing his apostolic credentials. Um, Galatians 3 and 4 is theology, talking about the whole notion of law and grace. And now in Galatians 5 and 6, we have the practical section which says, okay, because of the theology I have just taught you, this is what it means to you in your everyday life. And that's usually the way Paul uh, works in many of his epistles. Chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. It's a command. Stand fast means to stand your ground. Don't let anybody drag you back into legalism. Don't let anybody steal your joy, your freedom. And it says here, liberty by which Christ has made us free. Christ has liberated us from the bondage of the law. Now, what is the bondage of the law? Remember we talked about that last week? If Christ did not come to this earth and die, what is the only method whereby you have a hope of being saved? Keeping the entire law, and it's bondage. You can't do it. And it says Christ has freed us from that bondage. And don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That, that, that's an interesting word. It means to be tangled up, to get snared. Don't be snared by that yoke of bondage. It's, uh, it's something that you can't, you can't do. And it's interesting when you go back to um, Acts chapter 15, if you remember the um, Jerusalem council, James says, why do we want to put on them a yoke which neither we nor our fathers could bear? And the law is seen as a yoke of bondage. Um, you, you can't keep it. Stand fast. Don't let anybody steal your joy, your freedom. Why is that? Well, Paul gives four reasons here. In chapter 5, verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Um, number one, Christ profits nothing. Christ is irrelevant. His life is irrelevant. His death is irrelevant. His ministry is irrelevant. If you are going to be saved by circumcision, and that circumcision is just a, a, a general term to refer to the whole notion of the law, the bondage of the law. If you're going to be saved by that, then Christ profits you nothing at all. In fact, Christ is an irrelevant message. Why? Well, if you can be saved by the law, you don't need Christ. Which begs the issue is why did Christ come to die if in fact the law could save? And uh, the same notion is spoken of over in Hebrews chapter 10. In one of those passages that people have a difficult time with many times. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, uh, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
Of how much sore worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy as trampled the Son of God underfoot, count of the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Um, what Paul is saying there, he's not talking to people about losing their salvation. <clears throat> and a lot of people like to say, well, if you sin willfully, you lose it, right? I mean, that's what it says there. Now, let me ask a question. How many people sin today? How many did it willfully? All right, so if you want to take it that way, you're toast. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> The point is, every sin you do is a willful sin. So that's not talking about your, your individual acts of sin, but in context, what sin is it talking about? Well, if you go back up the, the few verses ahead of that, it's talking about um, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, but encouraging one another to love and good works. And the whole point there is that this book, and if you took Hebrews class, you'd understand the purpose of the book, but it's written to... People have not yet made a commitment to Christ. They're on the fence. And the writer's saying, if you sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of the truth. So whatever sin this is, it has to refer to you receiving the knowledge of the truth. So what sin could that be? If you receive the knowledge of the truth and you sin willfully, rejecting the truth. If you sin willfully after you receive the truth, in other words, if you reject the truth when it's proclaimed to you, He's saying there's no more sacrifice for sin. Now, since this was written to a Jew under the Mosaic law when it was in effect, um, as a Jew, when you sinned, what did you do? What did you do to cover your sin? You sacrificed a goat or a bull, right? Um, but if you have received the knowledge of the truth, i.e. the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you say, no, that doesn't mean anything, I'm going to go back and kill a bull tomorrow, what are you saying about the blood of Christ? It wasn't good enough. He was a criminal. He died as a criminal. He should have been. He's a usurper. And if you trample underfoot the blood of the covenant and count it an unholy thing, there is no more sacrifice for sin. The blood of the bull and the goat isn't going to do anything because you've rejected the truth. You've turned your back on the truth. And the whole point here is this. You cannot be saved by law and grace. You can't. And Paul is telling them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, if you become circumcised, what does that mean? To go whole hog into this whole notion of salvation by works, then Christ profits you nothing. He is of no value to you because you don't need Him. You don't need a Savior. You can save yourself. And then there's another problem here. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You want salvation by works? Fine, keep it all. Do it all. Now the problem is you've already blown it along the way, right? So you still, just because you keep it all from here on out, you're still in trouble. But the point he's making is, um, you want to be saved by the law, you've got to keep it all. Yeah. See, what we do is we, we, we think... We think God grades on a curve. And because of that, some of us will make it. That probably shouldn't make it. Alright? The problem is, in the, in when it comes to humanity, there was a curve wrecker. You ever have those in the class, like Barb Lowe? You know, she always blows the curve for everybody. Um, 
Josh blew the curve one time, didn't you? A couple times. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's always a curve wrecker. You know who the curve wrecker was? Jesus Christ. What's the uh, requirement? You keep it all. God doesn't grade on a curve. See, what we do is we compare ourselves with each other. We say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or that guy or this guy. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously God will let me in before he lets that guy in. Um, Paul is saying here, you've got to keep the whole law. You've got to keep every bit of it. And that was a real prominent day because, see, the rabbis taught that, well, if you just mean to keep the law, that's as good enough as keeping it. Because even they had gotten to the point where they sort of realized, you know, keeping this law, we just can't do it. We can't keep it. It's an impossibility. And then there's a third problem. You have become estranged from Christ. You have attempted to be, you attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Grace is nullified. Grace is nullified. In other words, grace ceases to become an operative agent for those of you who want to be justified by the law. And, and the whole point is, you know, I, I can't stress this enough. Paul's trying to do everything he can to say 25 different ways. It's either law or it's grace, but it isn't both. It's not both. And he's trying every way in the world to get this point across. If you are justified by the law, Christ <coughs> becomes of no effect and you are fallen from grace. In other words, grace is not even a word in your vocabulary. See, if you're justified by the law, what is that? Is that grace or is that merit? You earn it, right? You earn it. You know, I, you know, when your boss comes around and gives you your paycheck, he doesn't say, you know, the, the company's decided to be very magnanimous and gracious to give you this money. You've earned that. They owe it to you. Um, you know, they, they don't pull that on you. You, you get what you deserve. And uh, spiritually, you get what you deserve if you go, to, go by the law, because what do you deserve? Death, and that's what you get. Paul's saying you can't, be, you can't be saved by the law. You've become estranged from Christ. And you have fallen from grace. And you're excluded from righteousness. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It says here, we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What hope is that? What, what righteousness is that? Christ's righteousness. Salvation is a divine transaction. God takes all of your debt of sin and He gives it to Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to you. And that's the righteousness that you need to stand in God's presence. You're not going to stand in God's presence in your own righteousness. When we get to Philippians in a few weeks, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, you know, I had all these credentials. And then I met Christ and I counted them but manure, excrement, dung, in order that I may know Him. All that I was putting my faith in all of the credentials 
When I saw Christ, I saw the utter worthlessness of them. And I chucked them all. And I gave up what I... See, see all, all salvation is, is you give up your way of... Your, uh, your works, your energy, your credentials. You give that up and just take what Christ has to offer freely. But you have to give it up. You can't say, I'm going to take Christ to and. There's no Christ and. There's just Christ. Christ alone. And he's saying here, we wait for the hope of righteousness. It's not a maybe hope. It's not, uh, well, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll make it, maybe we won't. It's a sure thing. See, hope in the Bible is uh, present certainty of a future reality. It's a certainty. It's not a wishy-washy kind of thing. Someday I will be given the righteousness of Christ in reality. I have it now in standing. But if you looked at my life this week, you would say he's not really righteous yet. If I looked at your life, I could say the same thing. But someday we will be righteous. We'll have the righteousness of Christ. Why is that? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It doesn't matter what you do, and it certainly doesn't matter what you do not do. Neither one of those profits you anything. What does it profit? But faith working through love. Belief only. That's what brings a person to salvation. It's not works and. It's not faith and. It's just faith alone. Yeah. Are oh, you going to say? It's faith alone. And that, that is the crux of the argument today on how shall we be justified. And I think it was last week we talked about Catholicism and just as, as a system of belief and in Catholicism, you're saved by what you do. That's just the way it is. Um, and if you don't do those things, you don't make it. Um, I've been studying Mormonism, and it's the same way there. There are certain things you have to do. It's not all of grace. Um, you check just about any religion in the world. It's always a, some form of your agency, something you do. You work at it. Only the Bible talks about faith alone. And that's the only thing that will make it. That's the only thing that get Because you can't attain the righteousness. You have to, it has to be given to you. And then Paul turns and chides them in verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who slowed you down? Who got you bogged down? Um, in the notes, this talks about the character of the Judaizers and what these people did. And what they did is they hindered the truth. It has the idea of putting a weight of slowing, if you want to think of a race, you know, think of running a race in boots with a large overcoat and 40 pounds of weight in the pockets. You don't win that way. Um, who, slow, who slowed you down? You, you ran well, you started out well, but who slowed you down? Now, what we need to do is make a distinction here because there are probably two groups of people in this Galatian church. Group number one, they're saved but somehow they've come to believe that they're kept by works. Now are they saved? That's like saying, what was the color of Grant's white horse? If they're saved, and they came to believe that they're saved by works afterwards, are they still saved? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
by definition, if you're saved, you're saved. Whether you're followed up in your theology or not, you're still saved. However, there's another group that somehow thinks they're saved by faith and works from the get-go. Are they saved? Probably not. Probably not. Because see, out of the gate, they've got this notion of faith and works all balled up. I've seen some Christians who are, I mean, they're true, they're true believers, but somehow they got, they got this notion in the back of their heads from somewhere that what they do makes God happy. And they're always living in bondage. They're always living, worrying about, is God happy with me? Is God pleased with me? And uh, what if I'm not doing all that I should do? And maybe I can lose my salvation. And they become miserable. And they get all balled up. And, and I think that's the people that Paul's talking here. You ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? They hinder. Characteristic number one of a false teacher is they hinder you. They hinder you. They keep you from doing your best for Christ. Or, as Jesus Christ said in Matthew 23 about the Pharisees, that they encompass land and sea to find one proselyte. When they do, they make him twice the child of hell, hell than they are. And they shut the door of heaven and do not allow themselves to enter or anybody else trying to enter, enter. Now that's a fearful thing when you keep somebody from entering the kingdom of God. These false teachers hinder you. They slow you down. Now, verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Second characteristic, they're not of God. You do need to understand everybody who says Jesus, Lord, God, Bible, church, are not Christians. Just because somebody has a TV program and they supposedly <laughs> preach the Bible and they have a Bible on their desk doesn't mean they know God. And even though they might have a big church with Christian in the name of it, does not mean they know God. Having a Bible and all that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't mean you know anything at all. And you need to understand that, that just because somebody uses those terms doesn't mean they understand the truth. What do you need to do as a Berean Christian? Check them out. Check them out. I'm amazed at how many Christians today are dumb. They're dumb not because they're dumb. They're dumb because they don't check anybody out. I remember talking to people and they say, Oh, isn't, isn't, isn't Kenneth Copeland, he's just a wonderful man. I said, you know what Kenneth Copeland believes? They say, no. I say, well, let's see, he believes that Jesus is not God. <gasps> You're kidding. No. He's been quoted on that on number, numerous occasions. Yeah. Kenneth Copeland does not believe that Jesus is God. Now, is he a Christian? No. Can't be. Can't be. But most Christians say, well, you know, he uses the Bible, and, and he talks about God, and, and he talks about faith, but that doesn't mean he's got the terms defined. See, here's the other problem you have to do. When someone says, I believe in Jesus, you have to ask them, what do you mean by that? You ask a new age person, do you believe in Jesus? What's the answer? Sure. You ask a Jehovah Witness, do you believe in Jesus? What's the answer? Absolutely. You ask a Mormon, do you believe in Jesus? What's the answer? 
Catholic, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Does that make him a Christian? No. What do you mean by you believe in Jesus? What do you mean by that? To a Mormon, Jesus is the firstborn procreated being of Elohim God and one of his many celestial wives. <clears throat> and quite honestly, he is our spiritual brother in a very real sense in that we are all children of the Father. In, Je in, in Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus Christ is the first begotten creation of God. God created him first, then he created everything else. In the New Age movement, Jesus is one of the many ascended masters that take us back to nirvana. And he is one of the many guiding lights sent along the way, just like Buddha and Muhammad and all the rest of them. Christ is just nothing more than a prophet. An avatar, a reincarnation of Shiva, the god of, of Hinduism. So you've got to ask people, what do you mean by Jesus? Define that. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell me what you Here's another one. Um, Kenneth Copeland will stand up and say, you need to be saved by faith. Well, what does he mean by faith? Define faith. Well, to Kenneth Copeland, faith is a force, like the force of Star Wars. It's an amoral force in the universe that can be used by believers and unbelievers alike to get whatever it is you want. It has nothing to do with God. And in fact, faith is that universal power principle that God used to create the heavens. Because they misquote Hebrews chapter 1 and say by faith, or by Hebrews chapter 11, say by faith God created the heavens. What they don't understand being not Greek scholars and really not reading their own Bible very well, that it does not say that. Rather it says, by faith we know God created the heavens. It's not God's faith that created heaven. It's our faith that we know that he did. But you've got to ask them, what do you mean by faith? Define that. Tell me what you mean by that. And uh, that's where you start finding out where people really fall along the way. And is it important? Yeah, it is. Define, what do you mean by what you say? Because we can say the same words and mean two completely different things. Just redefine the terms. And uh, that's what these people here do. They've redefined the terms. Don't let them use God talk and Jesus talk and Bible talk and believe them. Rather, compare what they say with Scripture. The next thing they do in verse 9 is they contaminate the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's an axiomatic phrase. And let me ask a question. What, what is leaven a picture of in the Bible? Everybody said sin. Anything else? Uh, I don't think the Bible is a... I, yeah, I don't think the Bible is a picture. Yeah. Okay. I don't think leaven is a picture of sin. Rather, leaven is a picture of influence. And the context determines what kind of influence it is. In uh, the kingdom of parables, Christ said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leaven. Is the kingdom of God sinful? No, it's not. But it has influence, doesn't it? 
And quite honestly, most of the references to leaven are, are that of sin because sin has such an invading and pervasive influence. And remember when Christ uh, was chiding the disciples, said, Beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And they said, Well, we didn't bring bread, and he's probably chewing us out because we forgot to bring some bread along. And Christ said, No, nah, nah, no, you, nah, you guys missed the point. Beware of the doctrine. So in that case, the leaven is doctrine, the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. The whole point, I think, is that leaven is a picture of influence. And what happens if you get a little bit of legalism into something? What does it do? It influences the whole thing. And uh, I know this firsthand. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in this church. A little bit of legalism goes a long way to causing all kinds of trouble because see if you don't buy into what the legalist says you're not really a very spiritual person and all of a sudden you've got all this class struggle within Christianity you see you gotta understand when it comes to false teaching a little leaven leavens the whole lump and that by the way you know, just understand today in the Christianity in the church today we have a strong tendency to look down upon anybody who is trying to be very doctrinally correct. Because the notion today is toleration. You know, come on, chill. The, the Catholics mean well, don't beat them up all the time. And, and the whole notion in the church today is don't be discerning. Don't, don't call a spade a spade. Listen, just Let's just, I mean, they love Jesus. Let's just have one big group hug because we all love Jesus. That's all that matters. Um, I'll tell you something. They're, they're, doctrine, theology matters. Now, there's, there's some things that we can debate and discuss and banner back and forth and probably won't get a good answer on until we get to heaven, but you can't follow up the person and work of Christ. You can't foul up law and grace. You can't foul up the atonement. You foul those things up, you miss heaven. And today we're told, don't, don't worry about that stuff. Quit trying to split hairs. Quit trying to be so precise. And when somebody stands up and says, I have the truth, people look at them like, where'd that weirdo come from? Because what's truth today? It's relative. It's our whole culture. Stand up on the on the Donahue show or on the uh, whatever it is the 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 talk shows today. Jerry Springer say, "I have the truth." They'll laugh you out of the place. They'll laugh you out of there. Who has the truth? Nobody. It's like Pilate. What is truth? We have it. We have to fight for it. You have to die for it, maybe. But it's something to be fought over. And Paul says, don't let these boys in, because when they do, they're going to infiltrate and infect the whole lump. It'll just, it'll just eat its way in there and affect you all. You're going to say something? Yeah. I heard Bruce say it before. He said it's hard to sit at the king's table and eat the king's food. And lift your hand against the king. Yeah. It's hard to tell the truth. We're not, you know, living in a truthful position, I said. 
We need to be careful not to become God's doctrinal Gestapo, you know, trying to stamp out every little thing that we don't agree with. That's not the point. The point is, however, there is a body that you can't, you can't sell out. You can't. And, um, you know, that's why when Chuck Colson came along with this ECT doctrine or document that he is, a still believes in, and by the way, you can get on the internet and everything else, um, where he basically says that, that Christians and Catholics are really of the same sheep. They're the same shepherd. They have the same shepherd. They're both going to heaven. So let's repent of, the of, of our practice of trying to convert Catholics. Now what's wrong with that statement? Let's repent of our sin of converting Catholics. Yeah, the the reason you you evangelize Catholics because they're lost. But see what this document says is, look, they love Jesus, so they're in. Well, what do you mean by that? And all of a sudden, you find out that that's not what we mean. And the problem is, and, and I see this, I'll tell you what the danger is today. The danger is, I think, wholesale, we're selling out our doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've often been tempted to do this, if I get away with it, to do a survey in our church of all the Christians, ask them, how long have you been a Christian, get a date, you know. Then ask them simple theological questions. Define justification. What does that mean? You know what? I'm afraid. I'm afraid that 90% of them have flunked the test. They call themselves Christians, but they have no idea what it is they believe. None. And so, when you start talking about these terms, they 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 get this glassy stare. And they don't know what you're talking about because it's not important to them. They, doctrine is not something that's valued and treasured today. It's, it's something, you know, we don't want to get all that highbrow stuff. After all, we need to learn to love and relate to one another. And what has happened is this love has leaked into the church to the point that when somebody does talk about the truth and error, we can't handle that because you're not supposed to be nasty and talk evil of other people who don't agree the way you do. And again, we're not talking about everything. We're talking about the major doctrines. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. They contaminate the church and then they're going to be judged. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. God will judge whoever is doing this someday. The second most scary passage in the Bible to me is Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, did we not? And he says, I don't know who you are. There are people today that spend their lives supposedly proclaiming the truth, but they don't know the truth. Lord, Lord, did we not proclaim your truth? God will judge them, ultimately. And then they persecute the true teachers. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? 
then the offense of the cross has ceased. Paul is saying, um, if I am still preaching salvation by works, why are the Jews persecuting me? Because they wouldn't be persecuting him if he was preaching salvation by law, would they? No. And again, who are the persecutors of the church at the time Paul wrote this? The Judaizers. The Judaizers, the Jews. It was not the Romans. It was the Jews. They persecuted the church. Because Paul proclaimed a message of grace and they could not handle that. The, the Jew Jews or the Christian Jews? The Jew Jews. The Jew Jews. Yeah, the true Jews. The Jew no, the Jew Jews who still followed the Mosaic law persecuted the church. And uh, they hated the message of grace. Why did they hate it? Put them out of a job. Condemn them. And all those doggone good-for-nothing Gentiles get in on this thing. We don't like that. They had a real problem with that. We don't want the Gentiles in on salvation. After all, God created them to fuel hell forever. That was the mentality of the Jew. They persecute the true teachers. They persecute them. I thought this was the, the Jewish Christians because I thought they were saying yes, we believe in Christ, but at the same time, you have to be a part of the law. Paul is lumping, Paul is lumping the Judaizers and the the Christians in this church who follow the Judaizers right along with the Judy, with the Jews, because the message of the Jews was what salvation by law. So if you believe any part of that, what are what are you in effect saying about grace? Yeah, it's by your works. So you're buying into the message of the Judaizers. That's what you're buying into. And the Judaizers are the ones that are persecuting the Christians. They're the ones persecuting the church. Well, not they, but they're, the Jews are the ones persecuting the church. The Judaizers are halfway there. But since salvation is by grace or by law, and they want to say it's by law, they're lumped in, as far as Paul is concerned, with the Jews who persecute the church. Because it's by, by works. It's always by works. And again, that, 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 um, that really caters to your innate uh, pride, doesn't it? And I think that's one of the big reasons we have these salvation by works things out here. Because somewhere deep in us, we want to believe that we did something. Mm -hmm. I did it. Mm -hmm. I made it. And then... He says they should be cut off. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. That's a play on words. He says you want to go get circumcised, just cut it all off. I mean, there's no nice way to put it there. That's basically what he's saying. You want to go that far, go the whole way. He um, understands. Paul did not treat these guys nice. See, um, Paul did not treat, it's interesting to me, you know, I, I remember way back, um, I was teaching one of the, the, in the singles class, and I would teach about false teacher, and I mentioned some names, and I got one lady that was just, she just got irate that I would even dare to mention names of 
good, well-meaning Bible teachers like Kenneth Copeland and Hagen and all them. Um, she didn't like that. She says, you know, Jesus wouldn't do that. I said, okay. So next Sunday I came in I started reading all the passages in the Bible where true prophets called down the wrath of God on the unbelievers. In Deuteronomy, it says if you find a town that's teaching error, you know what you do to that town? You kill everybody in it, you burn the town to the ground, and you pile the rocks up, and you're not to build there ever again. That's, that's pretty severe, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. He called them a brood of vipers, snakes. Little snakes. Yeah. I, I read. I just read Matthew 23. I didn't even comment. I just read it, and Christ would call them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look really fancy. You know, some of the coolest-looking buildings are mausoleums. You know, the Taj Mahal is a mausoleum. In the middle of it, they got a dead body. You know, yeah, it was it was built by this king and to for one of his 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 wife that died. He built this Taj Mahal as her as her tomb. And you look at this and you say, wow, a beautiful building. And, and you find out that inside there's a rotting corpse. And that's what he called the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them children of hell. He called them snakes. Now, that's not a politically correct way to call people today. But, but I, you know, I just went through the Bible. I just read, you know, Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander, that he, he delivered to Satan. Um, you think I'm bad? I, I told him. I said, "You think I'm bad? Go over to Second Peter chapter two, where he calls them calls them scabs, and filth spots, and hidden reefs, and and he said they're brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. What do you do with a dumb animal, a brute beast? You go out and kill it. He said they're only good to be taken out and killed. And I said, now now ask me this: Does the Bible like false teachers? No. No. No, it doesn't. Why is it? Because they damn people with their error. They damn people. And Christ did not mince words. In fact, I think if he showed up today, he'd have a lot to say about some of the false teachers we even have run around today. I, I, I remember one... I remember being out uh, at one of the shepherds' conferences. Somebody asked John MacArthur what he thought of Kenneth Hagin and Kobe. He said, well, they're just false prophets. Now, you know, that's not a politically correct way to, you know, to say, say, well, you know, they're nice guys, but maybe they messed up here. No, they're false prophets. Right. They're not true prophets of God. You don't listen to them. You avoid them. Why? Because what they say does not mesh with what? The Word of God. And see, that's what God gave us as a standard. He gave us this word as a standard, and we are to compare every message we hear to this Bible. And if it does not match, we reject it as a false teacher, as a false prophet. Now, that person may be deluded. They may be mixed up. They may be deceived themselves. Nevertheless, they are proclaiming a false message that we have to ignore. Don't sit there and fill your brain with this stuff. It'll melt it. Stay away from false teaching. Verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Paul now turns, he looks at this notion of liberty, and he, he looks at some characteristics of it. 
For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but by love serve one another. You have been released from the bondage of the law, but what can't you do now? Use that to cater to the flesh. See, now you no longer have the rules and the regulations and the do's and the don'ts, but don't take your liberty and say, well, I'm free in Christ to do whatever and use it to do sinful things. See? And uh, there's a tendency to do that. It's called antinomianism. It's the opposite of legalism. You've got legalism, you've got antinomianism. And I talked about this antinomianism. And uh, it's literally against the law. Um, the whole idea is do whatever you want. God will forgive you. You're, you're free. I told you before about the one guy with a big beard and a big stogie. He must have been that long with a big ashtray on the pulpit smoking a cigar telling people about the liberty they have in Christ to basically do whatever you want. Can you do whatever you want? No. Why not? Because you're number one, rule number one is you can't use it to cater to the flesh. And what is the flesh? What is your flesh? The fallen humanist that you carry around. You can't use it to cater to the flesh and you can't use it so as you do not serve one another. So although we have liberty to do a lot of things, we may not do some things. Not because it makes God happy that we don't do them because we're breaking a legal code, but because we're so concerned about the other person that we want to love them. And we can't love them if we indulge ourselves. And we don't consider them. And see, in verses 13, 14, and 15, we have the principle. We have the principle. The principle is don't hurt each other. We'll, we'll break here in just a couple minutes. Um, take a break here as soon as this tape shuts off. Um, and it, it's one, one of those long extended tapes like I had last week, but rather it's a. No, it's got a couple minutes left here on the 92 side. What's really bad is when, this, when, the, when the preacher says, uh, you know, I have so many more things to say. Isn't that like you guys, you, you know, like somebody asks, what does it mean when a preacher t looks at his watch when he's preaching? Nothing. Means nothing at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the whole point, the whole point that Paul's making here is that we have a principle. And anything we do, and we talked about this the first week, anything we do, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this A, going to indulge the flesh? If it is, indulge the flesh, and I mean that in a negative sense. I mean, if you eat an ice cream sundae, are you indulging your flesh? All right. Depends, right? That's a principle. See, it's a principle. All right. All right. Now, it's a principle. Now, if you're 900 pounds and you eat ice cream, well, you got to consider that. The, the whole point is it's a principle now. It's a principle. 
It's not a prescription, it's a principle. Uh, is it wrong to go see a movie? Well, 900 million people can't be wrong. Yeah, 900 million people can't be wrong. <laughs> is it wrong to drink alcoholic beverages? No. Yes. No. No. <laughs> is it wrong to smoke? No. Charles Haddon Spurgeon smoked. Cigars. He didn't smoke in a pulpit, but he okay. smoked cigars. Okay. The point is, um, it's a principle. If what if I do this and it causes someone else to fall into sin, or in or it um, somehow damages their conscience, I should do it because of what yeah. love. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed of one another. If you go around flaunting your liberty and in-your-face kind of thing, that is not the way of love. Well, this all sounds very legalistic. No, it's not. Really. I mean, it sounds like you can put the rules together. You know, uh, those say uh, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't go to movies. That's man doing that. That's not. Uh, that's that's man doing. God gives you a principle, right? And God says, you know, sometimes it may be sinful for you to drink, right? If it offends you, right. it may be sinful. But it may be out, sinful. But the flat out say drinking is wrong or smoking is wrong. You can't say that. You can't say that. Right? No. Keep on drinking. It's all right. What? I keep hearing people say that. Because. Because it's one of those things that we can do to separate the the cruddy A of us from the cruddy B of us. Talking 13 and 15. I'm not going to spend more time on 13 and 15 because we already talked about that like the whole first week we were here. So the whole point there is when you, although we have Christian liberty, it is nevertheless constrained by number one, we can't indulge the flesh. Number two, we must love one another. And the reason being in verse 14, the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to do anything to harm them. And that's the, that's the principle. If you love them, you won't hurt them. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This section we're coming up on now is the walk of the Spirit versus the walk of the flesh. And he says, I want you to walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Obedience, right? Do what the Bible says. Uh, Walk in the Spirit. I, I guess uh, <clears throat> the best way I understand it is day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, you consciously decide to do what God tells you to do. That's all it means, to walk in the Spirit. And the notion of walk is a continuous action kind of thing. Um, most of us stumble in the Spirit. <laughs> you know, we do something right and we stumble and get on our face and have to get up again and take a couple of steps and block over we go again. But the notion here is that it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a manner of living whereby every day you're walking consciously with a God consciousness about you. I want to do what is right. I want to obey the Word of God. I want to do it. And if I'm walking in the Spirit, what, what happens to the lust of the flesh? 
It walks out. Yeah, it dies. The point here, the, the whole idea of verse 16 is that you are what you feed. You are what you feed. Um, I remember I was talking to one friend of mine a long time ago, and he was always talking about how he had such a pathetic spiritual life. Nobody would, you know, nobody would disciple me, and nobody wants to spend time with me, and, you know, I want to stand under my breath, well, because you're obnoxious, nobody likes to hang around you. Um, I didn't tell him that, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's when I wasn't walking in the spirit there. But uh, he's always complaining that no one, you know, everybody, lo nobody loves me, everybody hates me, you know, and nobody wants to spend time with me, and I don't understand why my spiritual life is so pathetic. And I told him, I said, well, I'm going to tell you how to get going on your spiritual life. Go home and burn all those 300 video cassette tapes you've collected over the years. The guy had hundreds of video cassettes, literally hundreds of them. Now, I have a lot of video cassettes, but they're all of Star Trek, and that doesn't count. But, um, but he, had, he had every movie under the sun. And he'd watch them. And I'm sitting there saying, how can you be a friend of the world and an enemy of God? Now, good thing Don's not in here. We're talking about movies. But, but the point, it's not, it's not like every once in a while I go watch a movie. That's not the point. The point is his life was movies mm -hmm. and TV. That's all he did. And, and he's saying, I don't know why my life, my spiritual life is so yucky. Well, I mean, you are what you feed upon. Um, I remember someone else that was always telling me, he says, you know, I'm so spiritually weak. And I said, what do you do when you get home? Well, you know, I, I got to watch two, an hour of the news on TV, and I got I to read the newspaper and, and this and that. And before I go to bed, I try to get devotions in. So I'll tell you what, why don't you bag the news and read your Bible when you get home? Oh, I can't do that. Got to know what's going on in the world. I said, why? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I hate to say this, but I am very ignorant of what's going on in the world, to be quite honest. You know, someone was asking me, so what do you think of Paul McCann? I said, who's he? Well, he's the one who won the, what, the Democratic or the Republican primary. I don't know, you know. McCain. McCain, or whatever his name is. McCain, McCain, I don't know. See, I don't even know who it is I'm talking about. The whole point is, the whole point is, you know, you are what you feed upon. You are what you put into you. You are what you, you dwell upon. And so many times as believers, we dwell on so much stuff that doesn't help us spiritually that we wonder why our lives are so pathetic. And, and I think where this really, really hits us is, is in our entertainment. Um, you know, what we watch on television. I mean, is it sinful to watch TV? Well, yo, watching a program is not necessarily sinful, but if all you do is watch it, you've got a problem. If that's what you're living, that's what you're feeding upon. Yeah, yo. You know, sort of like because he wanted to. I mean, those are the two answers. But, but yeah, I, I do a lot of channels. So I love that little clicker. I told you, you know, you skip through those channels. But I'm amazed at how much just crud is on there. Absolute crud. Do you have a table? Yeah. I do. Um, but I don't watch MTV. You know. Um, there, there's just so much, I mean, it's so bad. I mean, I, 
how many people do you all have cable? Uh, okay, so Arnett doesn't drink and he doesn't have cable, so he's better than you. Just so you know, I just want you to understand that. He's more godly. I can see the halo a little better on him. Of course, it might be just the reflection off the head, but. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's amazing to me how many times Christian know more, Christians know more about the lives of their soap opera stars than they do about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Elijah and Moses and Aaron and I'm amazed. What what what? I guess what really amazed me is a few years ago I taught um, Old Testament survey. And I remember Bible stories. When I was a little kid, I grew up with Bible stories. And I would say things like, you know, remember when Elijah would, and you get all these just totally like glassy stares from people like Elijah who? And we never heard that story, you know. And these are people who have been Christians for 10, 15 years. You know, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to, it's sort of a soapbox of mine, but the point is, you are what you put into your mind. Mm -hmm. And when you dwell on stuff that, that caters to the flesh, it's going to come out. It's going to come out in your life. It's going to affect you. And he's saying if you walk in the Spirit, in other words, before you watch that television program, say, is this something that I can watch as a believer? And if the answer is no, should you watch it? No. Don't. Don't fill your mind with it. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you cannot do the things that you wish. The flesh and the spirit are at war. And this is just an encapsulation of the whole message of Romans chapter 7. Where it talks about how the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And what causes that? Well, it's the sin principle that dwells in my members. It's in your members. And how is that fed? It's fed by what you put in. It's what you read, what you watch, what you think about, what you dwell upon. You know, I probably mentioned it in here about when I was out in... Uh, Boston when I went to watch a movie and you have parents in the line and that's when the uh, what's the one um, cartoon kids with the bad language what are they um, South Park or whatever no South Park, South Park. They, I was I was in standing in line to watch Star Wars and this lady came up and this guy and they had two five-year-olds and they wanted to go see South Park mm. I'm just swearing the cartoon. Yeah, it's filthy. Really? It's filthy. I mean, it's, it's very violent and filthy. And here's parents taking their five-year-old kids. Right, Don? I see it all the time. I am incredible. Personally, <laughs> I am so fed up with getting yelled at by parents because we won't let their 12-year-old in to see a movie. How many times have you seen it? Seen what? Stop what? Never. You say you see it. No, no, I'm talking about any of these. Yeah. Oh. 
You know, I think R-rated, there, well, there's R-rated mean you have to have a parent take you in, right, or something like that. 17 or accompanied by an By a parent, by your mom and dad or something. Um, but, the, you know, these, and American Pie is another one. You know, no, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's filth. Have you seen it? No. Well, how do you know? Because I, I hear about it. Oh. <laughs> you know, yeah, and uh, I, I got a question. I mean, you can also be projectionist part of the time, so yes, unfortunately, I see bits and pieces of a lot of these. And this is one I'm a boring people that if you haven't seen it, the very first scene is this teenager, this kid, sitting on the end of his bed watching a pornographic film on TV, and his mother walks in and he covers something up with a sock, and, and the sock pops up, and everything else. This is the very first nice thing your kids are that, that's Yeah, that's that's what kids are going in to see. Dang. All right. And uh, why fill your mind with that? Why fill your mind with that? It melts your brain. Um, the, the point is, you need to stay away from it. Because the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. Yeah. I think uh, in society that we live in, even the family, they can go together and, and go on Saturday, whatever, to watch a movie. But they spend less time going to church. And they'll, they'll do that together. You know, go see a movie, rated R, whatever. But they're rarely you see them come together. The house of God mm -hmm. and worship, you know, and, and if they do come, everybody will come to worship. Some come because they have been doing this for years. Yeah, it's I'm a Baptist. I'm a, you know. It all, I know you are because you're always sitting in the back row. You know? but. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the the whole point, the whole point. We don't need to belabor this issue, but I think you get the point. You are what you put into your mind. You are what you feed upon. You are what you listen to. And when you listen to this stuff, it's going to come out. No, I think as we talk about all these things, too, it's, it's what has you mastered. What have you become a slave to? You know, we talk yeah. even about drinking and smoking. You say, well, it doesn't say that, but but are you a slave to it? Mm -hmm. Has it controlled you? Yeah. Does it have control of your life? Right. You know, can you give it up or can't? Even, even sitting for the TV, there was time in my life I came home. I watched four or five hours of TV a night. It had me mastered. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't turn it away. It was more important to me than reading the Word of God. It was more important to me than spending time with my family. Mm -hmm. You know, it had control of me. And I think in our lives, we need to take a look at them things that have mastered us and have made us slaves to that certain thing. And uh, you know, it's like where we feed the body. Exactly. Yeah, I, it was really interesting because I was listening to um, somebody preach on this particular passage. He said, you know, every once in a while, it's good to just tell yourself no for no really good reason other than to just tell your body, I, I, I'm in charge. You know, is it okay for me to have this uh, piece of pie after dinner? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to have it today. And I'm not doing it because it's any, I'm just telling my body, I'm in charge, you're not, and I'm going to control you. And it's discipline. You know, and that's the nasty word. We don't like discipline. Who wants to listen to that? Discipline. But yet, that's what makes a godly person discipline. Yeah. Mr. Schaefer, um, he says, uh, can you get a dick computers? 
Yeah. Yeah. There are people that, that, that you know. I remember one time I had to laugh. Yeah, I, I had to laugh because I came home from work one time and my wife said, what are you doing home so early? I said, it's 6 o'clock. Well, she'd been playing a computer game all day and didn't even know what time it was. And she said, what are you doing home so early? I said, 6 o'clock. Oh, my gosh. You know. I was doing that last night. I was doing that last night. Man, again. I was doing my nephew last night. And I got there. And, and my nephew said, hey, Uncle Mike, why don't you damn boo? On the computer, yes. I got home at 3.30 this morning. Okay. They went to bed. I played. Yeah. The point is, the point is, you don't want anything to master you. Um, and, and the point is, the reason is because the flesh wants you to do things that are contrary to the spirit. See, the flesh is the easy way. There's no struggle. There's no discipline. You just sort of like flop and go. Whereas with the spirit, it's discipline. It's it's saying no. It's forcing yourself to do things that you don't like to do because they're the right thing to do. Right. And it's hard. And he's saying, uh, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What does it mean by not under the law? <clears throat> if you're led by the Spirit, the Spirit is principle, right? Not legalism. So if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under legalism. Because the Spirit is giving you a principle that you follow, not a code of conduct you follow. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the legal code of the law. So what do you want to be led by? A bunch of rules? No. Principles. And then it says here, if you want to know what the works of the flesh are, I'll tell you. Hey, listen. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. Those first four are sexual sins of impurity. And they had the problem in those days as well. Um, adultery, what's that? That's uh, sex outside of marriage, outside the bound. It's a married person who is indulging in extramarital affairs. What's fornication? Pornea is any other kind of sexual deviation of any kind. Uncleanness and lewdness have to do with lusts. Just close that door. Could you close that door? Yeah, somebody. Um, and then 20, idolatry. What's idolatry? Anything, anything ahead of God. So the computer can become an idol. Television, shooting pool, watching movies. Anything can become an idol. Yeah, in some cases, yeah. What's sorcery? Witchcraft. It's witchcraft. Voodoo. Yeah. Um, somewhere in here, I think, is pharmakia, if I'm not mistaken, drugs or whatever. I'm not sure if that's the word there. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts, arrests. People get mad and angry and fight. Getting into bar fights and all that kind of stuff. That's a work of the flesh. Yeah, you got some of those. But uh, it's interesting here when, when somebody is jealous, is that godly? No. 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 Now we, we we redefine the terms to make it mean something it doesn't, so that we can be jealous and it not affect our conscience. But you know the Bible says 
Jealousy is a sin. Outbursts of wrath. What's that? People who pop a cork. You know any of those? Mm -hmm. They just lose their temper all of the time. Yeah. Selfish ambition. What's that? Getting ahead. Why do you, why do you serve the Lord? You know, a lot of people serve the Lord so they can get ahead. Yeah, benefits. They want to be on the deacon board because that's some kind of makes them feel big and makes them feel important. And they want to be uh, the big schmo. They want to be on the pastor's right hand man so that uh, they have some position of authority or power. There's a lot of that going on in the churches today. Oh, we don't have that problem at Open Door, do we, Don? Um, you know, it, the, the whole point, the whole point, I, I think, is uh, you really have to examine your motives. Right. Why is it? And selfish, and, and selfish ambition is, uh, is you want to get ahead to somehow feed your ego or make you feel better than someone else or put you on a pedestal. Dissension, what's that? Arguments. Arguments. Um, heresies, what's that? False teaching. Envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries. And the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as like I told you now, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mm. Now, I don't need to give you a, it's in the notes, you can read the notes for a, a definition of each one of these things, along with the Greek word behind it. But the bottom line is, those who practice these kind of things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? They who practice, that's the operative word, practice. You don't practice them. Continuously. You know, the whole point is you show me someone who, who has a problem with their temper all of the time and have never dealt with it, never, you know, it's just, you know, well, that's who I am, like take it or leave it, and they want to claim to be a Christian, there's, there's a disconnect there. It's like the man who come, came in our church one time and wanted to join us, but he was a practicing homosexual. He's a Christian homosexual. Well, that's like saying, you know, I'm a Christian murderer. I want to join your church, but you know, every two years, so I just got to murder someone to whatever. Or I'm a Christian adulterer. I'm a Christian pedophile. You can't do that. You practice that stuff. That, that, that is, the, what Paul is saying is, the, is people who are characterized by these things, and notice what it says there, characterized by. That's their life. That's who they are. They will not inherit the kingdom of God because the characterization proves that there is no spirit there. That's the whole point. Don. <laughs> Devil doesn't make you do anything. No, that phrase might have been funny, but I don't... I, I mean it quite yeah. seriously in that. Meaning, for example, I smoked for years, okay? I wanted to quit. 
I wanted, I wanted, I prayed, I prayed, I did everything. I couldn't do And finally, one day, it was the Lord's time. I honestly believe there is a time now, mm -hmm. because that taught me that there is a time. And when I finally quit this time, I didn't even do it. I just said, I don't want it anymore. And boom, I was done with it. Conviction. Well, it's tra it's 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 conviction, it's transformation. Um, but but the point is, out there who accepts Christ, but he can't change his life tomorrow when he goes out and does it again. But the point is, there's a struggle there, and when he sins now, there's a conviction, convicting element that brings him to repentance. Paul is talking about people who are pedophiles and don't care. That's the, that's the difference. Right, you didn't care. I don't care. Yeah. Um, that's the way I am. Um, you can't, you, if you practice these things, it is indicative that you do not have eternal life. Mm -hmm. I'm strong in that What's that? I'm very strong in that conversation. When it comes to my preaching, it's it just something that really, it's a more bothers me, you know See, see, we got to understand for the pagan out there when they sin, what are they doing? It's what's natural. That's that's their nature. It's the nature of a sinner to sin. Right. That's their nature. But when somebody comes and says, "I'm a Christian," I'm a Christian. They're doing it. That's that's when you pull out the boards. Right. Because that's when you have a disconnect. But you still love them. Oh, yeah, you still love them. Yeah, you love but, them. But that's where you bring... You know, Christ talked about church discipline. We're going to talk about that in a little while here, in, in just a few minutes. Um, you don't go, I don't go out to discipline the world because of their sin. That, they sin because that's, that's what they are. But when it comes into my church and someone claims to be a Christian that they're living in sin, now that becomes a family matter. Now that becomes something that I have to deal with. I still love the person. You always do that. Right. But the point is, you deal with it. Yeah, okay, um, Barb. Somebody that you know that you have maybe known for a period of like three years or even a little longer, and you see a lot of these things in that person, and you know they seem to be you know very simple, and they say it, you know, I'm gonna go party tonight or whatever. But then they, when it comes to Christ, though, they're not disrespectful to Christ, but they sh they show like a belief. You know, and it's like, yeah, I, I used to go to church and I got offended and all that stuff. But they, it's like they, they have like a, like a sincereness with Christ. But yet they have all this, you know, what's the flesh. I would probably say that, you know, you can't see the halo or anything like that. But I would say they do not characterize the nature of one who is born again. They might respect Christ, but that's different than being convicted of sin. Pardon? If they're truly born again, they will return. I think the, the key is that they struggle with it. That's the point, the struggle. They, they may even practice, but they struggle with it. And, yeah, and that's what Don was saying. He struggled with this addiction. All right, he struggled with it. You know, and that, that I think, is indicative of where you have the Spirit within you, because there is a war within us. All right. What Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to 
deal with these people that say, I can have all my sin, but I'm going to heaven anyways. Because it doesn't matter. Um, if you are a true believer, you, you're not characterized by this stuff. And it's interesting here, is there any distinction drawn between these, these sins? Yeah. See, that's the difference. Um, it's whether, whether you're a murderer or just envious, you still don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not like, you know, there's the real bad, bad, bad sins, and there's the others that aren't so bad. No, sin is sin. You don't practice it. But it's not that they're not going to heaven because of these sins. They're going to heaven because these sins show the nature that they're not a believer. That's the point. Yeah, that's the point. Because even with like homosexuals, you can't, I think, to say you're not going to heaven because you're homosexual. No. That's not really true. They're going to heaven because they they're, they're going to hell because they're a sinner. And homosexuality is just one evidence of that sinfulness. Right. I'm, I'm saying when a person is a Christian, yeah, that, that's something. There's a problem there. It was really interesting. We had one guy come in here. There was a guy came in here and was uh, talking really amiably with, with one of the pastoral staff members. I knew him, Bill Eubanks, remember? And uh, they had a good conversation until he let on, you know, he was a homosexual and that, and he thought it was okay. And Bill started nailing him on this stuff, and the guy got mad. I raped and stormed out of the office and never came back. No, good. You have him there. All right. Yeah, and and the point was not you sin, but the point is you don't care. You think it's all right. That's where you got a problem, because he says the fruit of the spirit in verse twenty-two is this. In contrast to all of this stuff, what is it? Well, it's love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against this, there's no law. Why? If you're characterized by this, you don't need law. You don't need a rule. If you're characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, do you need a bunch of rules to tell you what you should and shouldn't do? No, it's become a principle in your life. You don't need the list anymore. You don't need any list at all because you know what is right and what is wrong. Why? The Spirit leads you. And again, you can go through the notes and it talks about what each one of these things are. Um, Self-control there is just discipline. Can you discipline yourself? Can you say no? And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? Here's an interesting thing. Um, although Christ kills your flesh, there's a sense in which you need to daily mortify your flesh. What does it mean to mortify it? Kill it. Starve it to death. And, and I think, and, and when's the last time you heard a, a message on mortification? You guys ought to preach a message next Sunday on the mortification of the flesh. That's a fancy term. All it means is to kill it. Just kill it. And how do you kill the flesh? You starve it. You don't feed it. And in Colossians, we're going to, in a few weeks, it's going to say, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Kill it. Mortify it. Don't, don't, don't feed those desires. Because if you feed them, you're going to have to deal with them. Don't feed them. And he's saying, those of you who are truly Christ, if you're truly Christ, what have you done with your flesh? You've crucified it. You've killed it. 
You've killed it. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, do you live in the Spirit? Yeah. Since, and that probably may be a better word to put in there, since, since you live in the Spirit, walk in it. Don't walk according to the law. Don't go back to the legal code. Don't go back to dealing with that. Walk by the principle of the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why do you throw that in there? Yeah. You know, I'm walking in the Spirit a little bit better than you are, Willie. And you know, you're walking in the Spirit a whole lot better than that guy next to you because you don't drink and go to movies, and he does, and he has cable TV. But of course, you're not. he's maybe more holy because he doesn't drink cho eat chocolate than you do. All right. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying there. Um, he's saying, don't, don't, don't allow this to become, you know, I'm, I'm more spiritual than they are. Yeah. See, see, that that that's that's a that's a bad end. That's a bad news situation to get into. See, when you start comparing yourselves like two pieces of coal, comparing themselves, saying, "You know, I'm not quite as black as you are," right. but they're both black. All right. Um, Paul says um, in First Corinthians, I think it's First Second Corinthians, if you compare yourselves among yourselves, you're not wise. <clears throat> Because quite honestly, the standard for my life is not you, is it? Right. It's Christ. When I get to heaven, God's going to say, you know, Alan, you were better than Don, so we're going to let you in. Well, you get in with that. All right. Um, <laughs> Don isn't the standard. And I'm not the standard. Christ is the standard. He's a holy standard. And we need to be very careful not to become conceited. You ever hang around a Christian who thinks they're more godly than anybody else? Yeah. Miserable, isn't it? It's miserable. We experience it as pastor, real. Pentecostal apostolic is just a different step. Yeah. We'll fellowship with God. He's a Methodist. He's a Baptist. I'm Pentecostal. I'm apostolic. You know what I mean? It says here... Uh, don't become conceited. Yeah. Big group hug. <laughs> now, now, chapter 6, we got 45 minutes to do chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What about somebody who has fallen into sin? Now, what we do in the church today is what do we do? We talk about them, don't we? Pastor, did you hear about so-and-so? <laughs> I saw them coming out of the bar the other day, and they weren't able to walk too straight. I mean, that's how we deal with it today. What does it say? Restore him. Let me ask you this. Um, according to what we have here in Galatians 1, meaning uh, if, if you find out about it, it should be corrected quietly and everything else. Why and what happened here was it not done that way? Because you had a bunch of sinners that didn't do it right. I have no other explanation. I have none. Um, what Don is alluding to is there's a situation here where 
you know, we had some of the same thing here. And instead of dealing with it, like I said, in Galatians chapter 6, to restore him, people wanted to cut the guy's head off and stick it on the podium for next Sunday's object lesson as a sermon illustration. Well, I, I'm not just talking and, about the restoration part of it. I'm yeah. talking about going way back to the very beginning. Yeah. Why, why was it important and necessary that the whole congregation know what's going on right off the bat? Okay, because... because according to this passage yeah, here, I can answer that for you. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. The issue is we had a situation where one of the pastoral staff fell into moral compromise. And it's not secret, you know, so it's, it's I mean, it's general knowledge. And uh, the way it was dealt with is that, you know, he had to publicly step down from his position of being a pastor and uh, publicly acknowledge his sin, which he did, by the way, and repent of it. And the question is, well, um, if he did that, then how does that fit in with this? If that's what you're asking, okay? And the reason is this. When you are a leader, a pastor, an elder, whatever, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may fear. The point is that um, when you are a high-profile, visible leader who falls into sin, you can't sweep it under the rug. Because that's a sin against the whole body of Christ. That's a sin. You know, why is it that, in the, and it's really interesting when going back to that whole situation, a comment came out, it was really interesting. So why, why is there a separate military court system? You know, why do you have a separate military court? So why not? Why do you have a separate military? Why does the military have a separate justice system? Because you're under, you're under a higher level of government. You're under an oath. You're under a higher level of conduct. And here's the other thing, and this is this is this. It was something very interesting that was said that that really points us out, is that sometimes when you when you're in the army and you do something wrong, you not only break a law, but you sin against the the core. It's 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 crime not only against what you did, but it's actually besmirching the the name, the reputation of the service that you're in. And there is a higher level of accountability because of that. All right? And that's, that, Don, is well, the difference. You have to put everything together as a whole. You can't just look at one. But, you know, it says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, it doesn't say uh, that if you're a priest or something, you know, yeah. forget it. No. If, if a pastor falls into sin, what should you do? You should go restore him with the spirit of meekness. However, there are some sins that are done that are so, so public and so, um, so damaging to the reputation, not only of that person, but of the church in the name of Christ as well, that there may be penalties that supersede, you know, just let's restore him and forget about it kind of thing. And that goes back to the nature of the office of an elder or pastor. They are held to a higher standard, okay? Because, yeah, that, that's just the way it is. Yeah? I mean, we have an example right here in Galatians when uh, Paul rebuked uh, Peter. Right. He, you know, he didn't uh, pull him aside on that. 
And the reason he, why did he, and, and that's, 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 that's right. And why did he rebuke him publicly? Because what did Peter do? He was called, causing others to fall. Peter was causing others to be carried away in dissension, causing you know, widespread trouble, and that had to be dealt with in a public forum. Plus he was destroying okay. the gospel. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was, it was not a, you know, this guy lost temper while he's playing pool or something like that. No, this, this was a major sin against the body, in which case it had to be addressed publicly. Okay, and, and that's, that's the answer. But what it says here, this is the point here, okay? The point is, and, and by the way, the word overtaken there means accidental. Probably the best way to put it is you're walking through the garden and you hit that rake that your kid left out and it, Handle comes up and whacks you in the face. It's not something, it's, it's accidental. It's not, it's not like you're going out trying to find sin. It's just you're overtaken. And what are you to do? You're to go to restore him. Now that's, that's interesting. You're not to go to punish him. You're not to go to uh, chew him out because you're obviously more spiritual than he is. Because why, after all, what does it say? Do not be conceited in the preceding verse. Rather, you go to restore. And the word restore there means to mend a broken net or to mend a broken bone, to put back together, to restore to wholeness. Willie? My question would be, what's the order in which the church restores such a person? What do you mean order? Is there a guideline that is set? You are to go and, and confront that person. Matthew 18 says it very clearly. You go one-on-one, -on -one, and if he listens, you've gained your brother. It's over, and there's no more... And if he tells you to hit the road and you know stick it in your ear, or whatever, then go get a couple more. And if he if he rebuffs you at that point, tell it to the church. And then in First Corinthians, you see a model of this in action. You see a man who is living with his his um, mother-in-law or his stepmother, I think it was. And uh, Paul says, throw the guy out of the church. And if you don't, I will when I show up. And then later on in 2 Corinthians, he's got to write him back saying, listen, this guy repented. He has asked your forgiveness. You've got to forgive him. Right. And you've got to let him back in. Now, see, that's, that's the hard part. When someone actually says, you know, you're right, I was wrong. <laughs> that's the only thing about that. My concern would be, and, and I've dealt with this before, where there was a preacher, and it happened while I came to pastor, where the thing was, he was doing things on the coming to the church, drinking around behind women, right? And when he came back, and he reinstated the membership, we accepted that. But God did not touch my heart to put it back in the pulpit. And, and see, that, that's an interesting thing. If you go out to my website, you're ever able to get to it. <laughs> my brother, by the way, is putting instructions on how to deal with the PDFs. They're all out. It's Adobe Acrobat Reader you need. You can get all that stuff. But I have a paper on there on restoring a falling, fallen pastor. Can you restore a pastor who has fallen into moral sin? Can he be a pastor again? And there's a lot of debate back and forth and all of this. Some you say, say, nope, he's forever gone. Um, others say, yeah, you can right away. And others say, no, there's a process. And, and where I basically came on there is I could not find any prohibition in the Bible that says you cannot. It's just not there. But the Bible makes a lot of warnings. And one of them is he has to be able to reprove his character again. Right. Takes time. Takes time. See, it's, it's one thing to say, I forgive you. 
can mean it, but it is another to just do away with all the consequences of what the person Yeah, you can't. Yeah, the person <coughs> still has to suffer whatever consequences arise or, or develop because yeah. Yeah, that's you know, it, you know, it, in the case here, can you say for that that this pastor should forever be debarred, disbarred from preaching? You never can say that. No, you can't say that. But I'll tell you what, it's not say. Well, we'll slap him on the wrist, give him a couple of weeks off, and throw him back in the pulpit again. All right, because that minimizes the sin. You have to be able to reprove yourself. You know, the Bible has very strong. Requirements for the character of an elder pastor. All right, and uh, you don't put just anybody in that position. It's an honored position. But I'll tell you what: when somebody seeks forgiveness, it is your duty, and your responsibility, and your obligation to forgive them. And that's something that that probably distressed me most because there were those who could not forgive. Now that's a problem right there. That's a problem. We have to forgive. You, you have to. If you don't forgive somebody their sin, what will God not for, do for you? Won't forgive yours. Yeah. That guy committed murder. Oh, brothers. Yeah. Pastor my father Mississippi accidentally in Jackson, Mississippi, in my home. Daughter comes home from college. He thought a burglar was in his house. He didn't know his daughter was there. His daughter runs out. Ooh. He accidentally shoots his daughter and kills her. What's the consequence? He's got to live with that. So how can men put consequences on anyone's sin? That's in the hand of God to do all of this judgment. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm saying, as some people, the unrestored can never restore anybody. There are right. a whole lot of people in the congregation who need to be restored, but yet... I think, I think what you do, though, is that, is that there's a difference. We are obligated. Pastor falls into moral sin. He comes and repents. You're obligated to forgive that pastor and to restore him to the church. Right. However, restoring him to that pastoral office right. Right. is another issue altogether, and I believe it's something that can only be accomplished through time. How do I prove my character to you? How do I do that? Time. time. And that is the only way I can do that. I can't come to you and say, you know, I'm a really good guy, I'm really integrity, and I, yeah, yeah, you are, okay, yeah. No, you've got to know me. I've got to be able to prove that, and I've got to be able to prove it over a period of time to show you what I really am. Right, I understand that. Just like your reputation, a lot of people go up on, uh, on the foundation of, of what people say. That's your reputation, what people say about you. Uh -huh. Well, your character is who you really are. And you and need time. You need your character. And a, and a pastor is one who has to have one of proven character. Yeah, so, so what people say right. is really not who you are if they don't know you. Right. Only God knows that. So and, 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 yeah, Arnett. You know, uh, like you said, a pastor's character. How do you deal with it, or how do you feel about, like, with a pastor, <clears throat> if your pastor uh, gets divorced, him and his wife, he gets divorced. Uh, 
I mean, should that affect his pastoral role? Or, or, or it may. It may. I hate to say it. It may. Depends on the situation. If this man has been a godly man and his wife is suffering from some mental illness or something and not, goes boncos and cracks up and divorces him. Pardon? Then I think he needs to be given some time off to work that out. If he can't deal with his own family, what makes you think he can run the church? Alright. It doesn't matter. It's, it, once you're married, it's like the guy who came in and said, Lord, I want a divorce because I married the wrong woman. And the pastor says, well, you got, she's the right one now. You don't have that option. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.